Dotnet Rocks, episode 1029, with guest Bill Wagner. Recorded Monday, August 25th, 2014. Yes, indeed. It's .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here. Bill Wagner's here. We're going to have a good time today, Richard Campbell. Indeed. It's sort of the end of the summer now. We're moving into September. I can't wait to hear all about C Sharp 6. That's just the stuff that's on Bill's list of things to talk about has got me really excited. But Cool. Yeah. Before we uh, talk to Bill, though, we got a few things to do. So let's start by rolling that crazy music. Awesome. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? For better know a framework today, I found a post uh, a post by Craig Butler from February 2014, which you can find at tinyurl.com slash 2014 devjobs. Devjobs? Devjobs. So, you know, the, the question is, what is the best programming language to learn in 2014? And he says, it's been a year since I revealed the best languages to learn in 2013. Once again, I've examined the data produced by Jobs Tractor, who analyzed more than 45,000 developer jobs advertised on Twitter during the past 12 months. The result? Java, way out front, 8,731. PHP with 8,200. Objective-C with 5,800. Java for Android with 43. SQL with uh, 3,500. JavaScript, 3,100. Ruby, 2,900. C-sharp, 2,500. Python, C++, C, ActionScript, ASP.NET, Perl, Scala, and VB uh, at the bottom. How, you know, however, I did recently see a, a salary uh, survey. Oh, yeah. Which d- was not in this order at all. So this is not like, this doesn't represent, you know, how well you'll be paid right. based on your language. Which kind of makes sense, right? It's, yeah, it might actually even be the opposite of that because... Yeah, if you're super popular, then, you you know, there's lots of people in that space. Right. These are jobs that need to be filled. Right. So that means that there there is a demand for them. At least there's a demand to advertise them, right? It may not be uh, indicative of the actual demand. Right. And what the total number of jobs are. That's right. So yeah. The, you know, interesting dynamic there. But at the same time, it's like if you're not already busy, and it seems like everyone I'm talking to right now is really busy. Right. Um, then this is obviously the list for you. Yeah. If you what sw- was that link again? It's uh, tinyurl.com slash 2014 devjobs. If you scroll down the page, he also says that industry analyst Red Monk has taken a different approach and determine language popularity by examining the frequency of projects on GitHub and questions on Stack Overflow. Nice. And that's a nice little graph, too. Yeah. That's really interesting, because that, that, to me, is what are people talking about, right? right? And even when you're doing well, and even when you're busy, you still need to talk about your stuff. Yep. So it's cool. And, you know, d- you sh- like everything, you shouldn't take one study, one survey, one graph as the end-all be-all of data, but it is interesting for the data that it has generated. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. And it's, and that's only one site. I mean, Jobs Tractor is one thing. But... Right. All right, dude. There I appreciate go. it. Good yeah. thinking. It's nice. to speak to, you know, where the languages are at, some of the stuff that's going on in it. And remember, this is also uh, February. Feb- right. From February 
2014, which was, you know, good seven months ago. Yeah. All right. Well, and I'm like it coming out of summer. It's been, you know, kind of a mellow summer, but uh, lots of technology. This fall is going to be crazy. Yeah. If I can find that link that uh, that my wife sent me um, with salaries, Ruby was actually on top. Really? Yeah. Ruby on Rails and then Java and then C Sharp. Don't you love it when open source projects pay really well? That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Some lessons to be learned there. All right, Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 935. And that's the one we did with Mads Torgensen back uh, in uh, NDC London. Yeah. And we talked about C Sharp and Rosalind. And Andy has this awesome comment. He says, a great show, guys. Uh, I've been excited about Rosalind for some time because it's the engine for script CS. Remember with right. uh, Glenn Block and Absolutely. all that craziness going on there? Yeah. But at, and although... You know, that's back when it was still very much beta and you had to download it separately and so forth. Like, it's it's different. It's These are things that are, that are changing. But after hearing this episode, I'm now chomping at the bit to see the new features of C-Sharp that Rosalind makes possible. I'm also really glad to hear Mads talk about letting F-Sharp features inspire new things in C-Sharp. Async is great. Now, maybe the ability to, to anonymously implement interfaces or an option type or, dare I dream, pattern matching. All stuff that F-Sharp's great at. But back to what was actually talked about in the episode, I was particularly excited to hear about primary constructors and getter-only automatic properties. In F-sharp, primary constructors make class definitions dramatically more terse, a feature I think will be of even more importance in a primarily OO language like C-sharp, because you can code sort of functional in C-sharp, but in its roots, it's an object-oriented language. Uh, combined with the added terseness and immutability of getter-only auto properties, I hope this will lead to less resistance to making new, smaller, record-like classes. These sorts of classes could be used to reduce the complexity of method signatures, to allow for multiple value returns, and to remove a lot of the need for using dictionaries and collections and all those sorts of things, and mm. syntactically awkward tuples, and as private classes within other classes to further separate responsibilities. Hmm. Now, I know there's technically nothing stopping us from making these kinds of classes today. I truly believe that there's a psychic cost to all that syntactic cruft that prevents a lot of us, including me, from doing so. That That's a mouthful of a paragraph, but let's dig into this because I, I totally agree. We, we've had structures forever. Yeah. Right. This whole thing that you could pass multiple values as a return type, that, that's old. Right. And yet it is such a pain in the butt. Mm -hmm. that we just don't do it. Right. So, you know, I'm with Andy here. Like, the, what's coming in this language makes this a lot more approachable that we could actually take this on. I'm, I'm sure Bill has a comment, but let's, sure let's finish this up. I also think that I heard just the slightest hint of a possibility of adding a macro system to C Sharp. That would certainly make it easier for the community outside of Microsoft to experiment with new ideas for language constructs that would give the C Sharp core team quite a wide pool from which to pull ideas. And I think it was more than just a slight hint. I think mm -hmm. Mads was pretty much saying, do what you want. This could, you know, I, in some ways I feel like what's coming in Roslyn is the new VBA, the language that will go everywhere, do everything, can be extended anyway. It certainly has that potential. So thanks to you both and everyone behind the scenes for many years of valuable and entertaining podcasts. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Andy. Good comment. And uh, we'll certainly drill into this some more because I do think... And this is what we said back in December with Mads. This is like a Cambrian explosion about to happen, freeing up the language to do so many different things and to tackle it different ways. And I think that's going to be our whole show today. So thanks, Andy. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET or via any of our mobile apps. 
We've got them for Android, Windows 8, iOS, and Windows Phone 7 and 8. And I found that uh, link, by the way. If you go to tinyurl.com slash 2014 job salary survey, this is uh, at msguru.com, G-O-O-R-O-O.com. It's which language wins in terms of salary demand, July 2014. Interesting. Yeah. There you go. So Ruby on and, interesting. And Ruby VB, came out on top. Well, Ruby and Ruby on Rails, VBA right up there with them. Yeah, Isn't that is, interesting? It doesn't matter that it's a new language or a hip language. It matters that there's demand. Right. I also see that Java gets a lot of demand too, and I wonder if it's just because there's not as many Java developers as there were, but yeah. there's still lots of projects. Right. Yeah. Interesting, huh? Yeah, absolutely. It all depends on what data you're looking at, right? Right. And what, and what you're actually concerned about. But, you know, taking in a lot of different sources of data in a lot of ways that they are gathered and for what purposes gives yeah. you a clearer idea. Well, and job listings is a different thing. Right. Right? That's looking for stuck guys. And right. I, it makes sense to me that Java's high on that because there's been a lot of people looking for Java folks. Right. And that doesn't mean that those projects are filled and that they're being paid well. Right. So this is actually more indicative of the demand for programmers. I mean, job sa when salaries are higher, that means the demand is higher. Right. So, yeah, funny how that graph clusters in the top left there, which is not a lot of jobs pays very well. Right. As opposed to lots of jobs pays not as well. I mean, JavaScript is way far to the right. Yep. There's tons and tons of jobs. Not as the highest paid, but they're all, I don't know if you look at this overall, but those are high salaries, although they're Australian salaries. Yes, yeah. It's pretty close. Pretty it's close to a U.S. pretty dollar. serious income. Yeah. All right. There you go. Enough. Uh, before we go any further, I need to tell you Pluralsight is home to the largest technology and creative training library on the planet. They have over 3,000 professional developer, IT admin, and creative courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release new courses daily and offer a 10-day free trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. So try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to Bill Wagner. Bill Wagner's technical time is spent between curly braces, primarily with C-sharp. His technical areas of focus are C-sharp, .NET, and TypeScript. His non-coding passion is to help organizations build effective, high-functioning developer teams. Bill is the author of the best-selling Effective C-Sharp, now in its second edition, and More Effective C-Sharp. He has created live lessons on async programming in C-Sharp and C-Sharp puzzlers. His articles have appeared in MSDN Magazine, the C-Sharp Developer Center, Visual C++ Developers Journal, Visual Studio Magazine, on and on and on and on. You can read the full bio up at .netrocks.com. He's got a lot of cred. It's Bill Wagner, and he's back. Hey, Bill. Hey, Carl. How are you doing, Richard? I'm all right, buddy. Good We're to hear awesome. from you. And last time it was TypeScript, so I'm glad you're going back to your roots. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I went back that far, it'd be C. But oh, um, shh. ah, hey now. I keep using both. You know, we've got to got to move with uh, writing programs on machines people want to run them on. Yeah, without a doubt. So let's talk. Uh, let's just get right into it here, Bill, and tell me about. Uh, let's go down the list of of things that we can look forward to in C sharp six. Um, Richard mentioned in that in that message that was left, uh, primary constructors, that's a biggie. But uh, tell us essentially what they are and why we need them. Okay, so a lot of the C-sharp 6 features, uh, the team really started accelerating, doing a lot more new features in both C-sharp and VB as they were working more and more with the Roslyn compilers. 
And in this release, there isn't so much a single theme, you know, other than the fact that now the C-sharp compiler is written in C-sharp and the VB.net compiler is written in VB, you know, and they share, share some code. Mm. And that fact means now that the team members are spending all of their working time in the language they're working on rather than writing these compilers in C++. Right. That's so a now great that, step forward. It gives them a whole lot of new ideas going, I wish I could write code that looks like this. And, you know, we've talked quite a bit in, on your show. You've talked about the Rouseland APIs and the, and the way that that's opened up for developers in general. And now the features that we're now seeing in the language that are coming out, the, the theme, if I were to have one, is just developer productivity. There is just so many things that allow us to write code that reads very clearly what our intent is, but it's not as verbose. It's not as time-consuming to see and parse and figure out what different things are in a class. Yeah. And primary, you know, and primary constructors are, are definitely one of those features. You know, so like, you know, let's say I was writing a point class prior to C sharp six. You know, okay. I'd write public class point. You know, I'd write a constructor that took an X and a Y, and I'd have private backing fields for X and Y and public properties, you know, get X, set X, and mm -hmm. get Y, set Y, and so on. Mm -hmm. So with a primary constructor, now what I can do is I can say public class point, open parens, int X, comma, int Y, close paren, and the compiler will generate that constructor for me that takes an X and a Y. Nice. Just okay, one so little one little thing that I don't have to write, right? Because I now, write them over and over again, right? And now that X and Y are in scope inside the class to use as a field initializer. So I can write something now like public int capital X as a property get, and I can say equals lowercase X that parameter that comes in, mm. right? So now I can write this field initializer syntax that we've used before if I were just to write, you know, private int x equals zero. Right. And I can bring in that parameter just at the declaration of a public property. Yeah, that's great. And the compiler will generate the backing field for me. And I have auto properties, you know, with just a get based on that primary constructor and it kind of flows right through. And it's a much smaller way to write our data transfer object style classes. Now that's a get, but does that allow you to have a, a traditional setter as well? Uh, yes, you could certainly do that. So I could write, you know, public um, int x get semicolon set you know, equals x. So it would be initialized to the value that you supplied on that primary constructor, and it's a read-write property. Right. So yes, you can do that. So effectively, that gives me a private field as well. Uh, and that exactly. I don't have to define again. Right. And in that sense, just like the auto properties we use now mm. would do that, but now I don't have to write that extra constructor. I can simply declare the primary constructor and initialize that field at the point where it's, you know, where I declare the auto property. So great. And then, and, and then do you have a uh, scoping possibilities? So let, if I, you know, if I wanted to make the getter completely public, but uh, maybe I want to make the setter, I don't know, protected or something like that. Uh, yes, you could still put the, you know, get 
semicolon, private set, or protected set on it. And in the case where it's private, that name of the parameter, that int x on the primary constructor, that's in scope inside the class. Mm. Mm. And that would be the name of the private backing field. Those guys think of everything, don't they? <laughs> right. So, so unlike today where you've got, where you would have to do public, get, private, set, and yeah. then you know, you're accessing the property, you know, in this new world, you can access the backing field directly because you give it the name when you declare the private or the primary constructor. Love it. This also reminds me of the show we did a couple of weeks back talking about DDD with, uh, with Steve Smith and Julie Lerman. And part of that was the whole idea of, you know, just never having an object in an invalid state or in a null state, that the whole thing with a primary constructor is you you don't create the object without the stuff you need to make it meaningful. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a, a pattern that we do all the time, but we have to write it. Yeah, we have to fight for it. We have to write it. Yeah. It's not baked in. Exactly. And that's, that's where I mean where C-sharp 6 is all about productivity. Now there's a more concise and yet still very clear to read syntax to do the kinds of designs that we're doing now. Great. Yeah, what else is on the list? <laughs> Again, one of the next ones that I really like um, is just a, a nice convenience. Um, static usings, which is a kind of a funky name for the feature, but I don't know of a better one. So right now, let's say I was writing something, let's take this point class, and one of the methods would be to calculate the distance of a point from the origin. Mm -hmm. Right. So we'd use... Pythagorean theorem, and it's the square root of x squared plus y squared, right? Right. So you'd have using system, and your method would have math dot sqrt, you know, open paren x squared plus y squared. Well, now what I would be able to do in C sharp 6 is I would be able to say using system dot math. Okay, so I'm using that static class. Mm. Math is a class in the namespace system, and all of its methods are static. So now I can use that class, and now I can just simply call square root. Hey, just so like I VB. Take, just like VB. There you go. <laughs> nice. So now in those instances, you know, whether it's system.console to do some read and write lines or do some logging or, you know, system.math, or you can do some really interesting things if you want to statically include system.enumerable. And now all the link methods become global methods in inside that scope. Now, is it just for static members, or can we uh, do this with our own objects as well? Like, you know, in VB, if you have an object that you have to set, you know, 10 properties or whatever, you can say with, and then the object name, and then inside the, that, that block, you just type dot this equals that. That feature isn't available in C Sharp. Mm -hmm. Um. So if we were going to work with an object, you would ha still have to do object dot whatever, and okay. it doesn't have the width syntax. And I think that's being discussed on the Roslyn uh, forums, mm -hmm. but I don't believe it's being or it's formally been accepted as something the team wants to do for C sharp six. Okay, but, but that list continues to change. So if you check Roslyn.codeplex.com, there's information on what's in each CTP and what the newest language enhancements are. And there's a column in that document for, you know, already done, planned, Great. you know, under discussion and so on. Yeah, right. we should ask our listeners, uh, uh, you know, if you if you are interested in that kind of feature, you want to see that in C Sharp, uh, you can always, uh, you can leave a, first of all, let's start a discussion, leave a message right here 
on .netrocks.com or on your mobile device on you know on this show and with the discuss uh, comments. And uh, also, I think there's an alias that people can send to, uh, suggestions to Microsoft, isn't there, Bill? Um, you know, I don't know about an alias, but I think the best thing to do would be to just post a question on the forums mm. on roslyn.coplex.com. Okay. So now, you know, the Roslyn compilers are open sourced. Great. And you can pull them down. You can build them yourself. You're going to have to follow the instructions on how to build them. Hold that thought while we pay the bills, Bill. Uh, this is a good time to tell you about Coder Camps. Coder Camps is changing the way people learn .NET and JavaScript. If you've been learning .NET on your own, these guys can get you the skills you need to get hired in just nine weeks. They've been around for over a year, and the results are incredible. Everyone who's graduated has been hired within 90 days, and now they've made it even better by letting students attend camp online. Check them out at CoderCamps.com. So tell tell me about the uh, the Roslyn uh, site again and what we can what we can see there. Okay, so if you go to roslyn.codeplex.com, mm-hmm. you can see the the source for the Roslyn compilers. There are now a few different branches there, and to your discussion, uh, the email Richard, one of the branches has a very early prototype of the pattern matching F sharp style pattern matching in C sharp. Wow, very cool. That, so. And is that being built by Microsoft people, or is that actually direct open-source contributors? You know, the original comment was from Neil Gafter, who's on the C-Sharp team, and right. I believe it's being built mostly by Microsoft people right now. Mm. But, uh, you know, the Roslyn, um, that code base is accepting pull requests, so there's no reason you can't do it. It's amazing. And, and I remember and I, at, at Build in April, uh, when... Anders pushed the button and deployed to CodePlex. So this is now a fully an open source project, the, the C-sharp compiler. Right, and the VB compiler. You know, right. They, they are both up there. Um, and I think I, I should add that this pattern matching feature is not scheduled for C-sharp 6, but is under discussion for something after that version. You know, so it's certainly something to keep talking about and something to refine the syntax and decide exactly how we want it to use. No, but if you're expecting it to come in the next CTP, it definitely won't be there. Right. I mean, well, and this is the interesting thing about it. I mean, if you want to play with it, it's on CodePlex. Just pick it up, compile it, and use it. Right. Now, that's something, you know, since our audience is all .NET developers, this is a very interesting chicken-and-the-egg problem yes. for Roslyn. Okay, so the Roslyn compilers are built using the C-sharp features. Right. Or the new C-sharp and VB features in the latest versions. So... If you don't have it, you can't really build it yet. So there's a document on that same site that says how to get the source and how to build it. So you'll have to get the source. And included in the source is a NuGet package that contains a built version of both of the compilers. Okay. So that now you can get the source, you can build it. There's also a fork of the XUnit test library. Yeah. The compilers have, you know, thousands of tests to verify that the language features are working correctly. And those are using a fork of XUnit that works with the Roslyn compilers. So now you'll get that NuGet package as well. And then you can build the Roslyn compilers, build the, um, you know, build and run the tests, and then you'll be able to do whatever exploration you want with either of those compilers. And there's one or two other tricks you have to do to run your own version of the compiler is the official releases from Microsoft of the compilers are strongly signed. Mm. And 
Microsoft is not obviously giving us their private key to strongly sign our own builds of, of Roslyn. So you'll have to do a little bit of registry tweaks so that you can run the version you built, which won't be strongly signed. Right. Right. So you can grab the source, you can build it. It's the same bits, not strongly signed, and you can run it and it'll run on your machine, but you wouldn't be able to distribute it and have it act like the Microsoft distro because it doesn't have that key in it. So I appreciate that that Microsoft's made the distinction of their strongly signed version is the official version. Because I think for folks who aren't involved in open source, that's kind of terrifying. Mm. But you still get back to this idea of how do I actually contribute something to C-sharp? Right. So now if you look on the CodePlex site, you will find a set of issues. Um, you will find some um, features that they're accepting contributions on. And you'll find a guideline for the code, for what they want in the code, if you were going to make changes, the style that they want you to follow, you know, what they would like to see in tests, and go ahead, make the changes, and submit a pull request. You know, and then it will probably get discussed. It will probably get uh, you know, looked at and reviewed. And you know, if it's a bug fix that's on the map, it will probably get accepted. You know? but if you go and, it, off, and it just uh, reminds us that... I know it's open source, but it's not a free-for-all either. Like, Microsoft right. has a plan for right. C-sharp. Right. And I think if you want to participate in that plan for both C-sharp and VB, other things on that site are the language design notes from every language design meeting. Right. Um, so what you can see is on the features that are planned or being worked on, you can see things like, well, here's what we're looking at now for the syntax. Here's some ideas as to how we think we want to implement it. You know, and, and I think if you're going to do anything other than a simple bug fix where it's obvious what you should change, yeah, you should really look at that and do something consistent with the roadmap. So you can have influence over the roadmap, but until the roadmap changes, you can't just build whatever you want in C-sharp and expect it to be pulled in by the Microsoft team. Right. I think it's probably much less likely that it would be pulled in if you just came up with your own ideas. I think right. that's definitely true. And but I nothing think that's stops true you from writing it and running your own version of C-sharp. Exactly. And I think that's true of any open source project. Right. You know, with any open source project, I think that will be true. Yeah. You know, contribute in a way that's consistent with the roadmap and people will be thrilled. Go try to change everything. And, well, maybe not so much. Bill, I was uh, looking at your list of, of things to talk about here and was surprised by this one. Await in catch and finally. And it begged the question, wow, I wasn't even aware that I couldn't await in a catch or a finally block. Is that right. true? Right. Uh, yes, that is true in the current version. Now, if you look at what, you know, some of our previous shows when, you know, John Skeet and I have talked about how the compiler implements async and await. Mm -hmm. So the compiler generates a state machine so that your method will run until it hits an await. And then it's going to return a task. And as part of that operation, it wires up a continuation to execute the rest of your method mm. when that task finishes, right? Right. So, you know, you, you can await that task and then your code execution will block until the task finishes and so on. Now, what's very, very hard to do and what's already tricky is somehow, if you think of writing a method that has catch and finally in it, the state machine has to know that it should only execute the finally clauses after all the asynchronous work has been done, right? So if I have an await somewhere, say, at the third line of a method, 
And then there's a finally. Well, that first return, I can't execute the finally. Right? Because I still need those resources to do the code that comes after the await in this method. Right. Okay. So now, you know, like let's say you were doing a web download and then I'm going to download an image and save it to my hard drive. Yeah. So I do a wait, web request, whatever. And then in my finally, I'm going to close the file stream where I'm going to store the file. Well, I can't close that stream before the bits are downloaded and written. So what would happen is now the C-sharp compiler and the VB compilers generate code that do a go-to into the finally only if they know they've done all the asynchronous work. That's already pretty tricky. Yeah. Yeah. So now what they've added in this new release is now I can await in the finally. So I think I've done all my work and now I get down into a finally and I can await on something else, which kind of, you know, now I return from the finally, but yet there's more work that might have to happen after the await's done. So to do more cleanup. So it kind of changed a bit. Hmm. Uh, and it, that's something that I think for developers that are using async and await, you know, like you said, I didn't realize I couldn't do this. Right. I, I just sort of assumed that if I ever wanted to, you know, make a call to some process or whatever, or, or a service call or something in a in a catch block, I could do that. But I guess I couldn't. No, you couldn't. And now, you know, what seems obvious if you're just using the feature now is implemented. Wow, that's great. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is now? Uh, must be that happy time again. <laughs> yeah. Time to await an answer to the question, why doesn't Carl catch himself a professional comedy writer so he can finally have good jokes in the middle of the show? Because <laughs> no comedy writer would write geeky jokes like you write them. Because <laughs> that is a very geeky joke. Yeah, it was. Thank you. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a SyncFusion Essential Studio uh, from Syncfusion to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who it is, say goodbye to boring enterprise apps. Syncfusion Essential Studio offers more than 500 controls to help you build stunning applications. Just released an amazing set of ASP.NET controls, 100% powered by JavaScript. Download a free trial at Syncfusion.com today. And Syncfusion's also published over 40 completely free eBooks on topics ranging from Hadoop to assembly. Each book written by a leading expert contains 100 pages of wholesome technical content with absolutely no promotional fluff. Head to syncfusion.com slash ebooks to get your copy now. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Will Stevens. Congratulations, Will. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. He just won that Syncfusion Essential Studio. It's a whole big box of goodness from Syncfusion. Hey, if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and uh, every show we give away great stuff like this. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club, but you got to join to win. So, uh, Bill, we want to know if you had $5,000 right now to spend on technology, what would you be buying, sir? All right. Since you gave him a golf clap, I want you to go to tinyurl slash golf gadget. Uh-oh. <laughs> tinyurl.com slash golf gadget. All right. Okay. Now, what this is, this is a, a launch monitor. Oh, my God. 
So now I may blow your budget because if you do click on the buy now button, it says call and we'll tell you what it costs. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Wide scope. So, so what this does is you set this up next to where you're practicing and it's going to measure all kinds of data on how well you're hitting a golf ball. You know, how high you're hitting it, what the launch angle is, what the club head speed is, what the ball speed is. And you can use that to really improve how you're playing. Or, you know, as they say in the ads here, you can use it to get a club fitting so your clubs and the balls you're hitting are matching how you're swinging. Really? That would be the toy I would buy. Yes. I just went searching on eBay and an older model of Flightscope is going used for 2500 bucks. I think this is a radar. Uh, yes, that's definitely how they how they are built. Oh my goodness! I, a little personal radar for tracking golf balls. Huh. This may be the only sport geekier than software. <laughs> that's awesome. And and if you'll note at this particular site, they also are using the new marketing term for some of the geeky stuff. One of the things it measures is something called the smash factor. Smash factor. <laughs> right. Now, now, what that is, is, you know, for us geeky people is, you know, when you hit the ball with a club, you know, the physics says the club deforms and then springs back out. Right. So the smash factor is the ratio of ball speed divided by club head speed when you hit the ball. Ah, okay. Uh, and if you're really good, you know, like the players on the PGA Tour, that's about a 1.5. So, like, if you hit, huh. swing at 100 miles an hour, the ball leaves the club at 150. Right. Isn't the ball that deforms more than the club? I was going to say. It's a bit of both, and it'll depend on the club. Like, drivers, which have that really big and very thin titanium face, it's definitely both of them. Huh. Oh, you know dude. Flightscope X2 is a 3D phased array rate tracking radar for playing golf. See, now, I thought about that one, but I was afraid that might really blow the budget. <laughs> it's like, could be used in a fighter jet. I could be playing golf. That's right. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Bill, you're awesome. That is That's, pretty awesome. Dude. I just took the budget out. It's like, Big boy toys. That's what that is. <laughs> oh, man. That's amazing. So we got to have some fun. Oh, without a doubt. Pretty cool, man. Pretty cool. Uh, let's dive back into this thing. What All do you right. want to do next, Carl? Yeah, let's uh, let's keep going. Uh, maybe the dictionary initializer? Right. So now, one of the things that we're finding when we build software now is we're often building, you know, server-side stuff in C Sharp or VB, you know, using ASP.NET, Web API, and so on, that are delivering objects to a JavaScript client using JSON. You know, and then receiving things back that look like JSON and turning those into objects. And right now, with our strongly typed, statically typed languages, that's really kind of a pain. So what we're looking at there, and what the idea behind this feature is, is effectively I can make very lightweight, anonymous data transfer objects that look like a dictionary, like a JavaScript anonymous object. So I could just say, you know, Person dot first name equals whatever, person dot last name equals whatever, and I have this kind of an initializer where I can take in, say, a JSON packet and just turn it into a C sharp object. Hmm. Okay, um, in a much simpler way than we do now using some of the uh, NuGet packages that we use. So that's kind of the idea behind that feature. That's pretty um, awesome. Called, 
Right. It had been called lightweight dynamic very, very early, and now it's kind of morphed into something like this to solve sort of more of that specific problem. So the idea then would be it's much easier and much more lightweight to build the server side of our, you know, spa systems where we've got Jason on the client side. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Interesting. Yeah. Yep. And again, once once again, it's more for these types that just don't have a lot of behavior. They're just carrying data. And we want to be more productive and not have to do a whole lot of typing just to go, hey, a person has a first name and a last name. Boom. Go. So what I'm getting here is that unlike, you know, previous versions of C Sharp when they come out, this version really seems to be have a lot of little features that add up, add up to uh, lots of productivity enhancements. Right. And that, I think, is the big theme of this one. You know, now that the compilers are written in C Sharp and VB.net, and now that the compilers were rewritten based on the most modern versions of the language, you know, remember the the previous production versions, you know, that code base goes back to C Sharp 1.0 and, and the original VB.net, where we didn't have generics, we didn't have link, we didn't have, you know, all of the syntax that we now have. Hmm. And it was getting pretty hard to add new features. And now that there's a new, clean code base written in the same languages, you know, with the same idioms that these languages want to support, you know, all of these little ideas are coming forward. You know, and some are bigger than others, but I think there's a lot of really neat ideas that just make programming so much more fun and so much more productive. Tell me what we do, what we're doing with nulls in C Sharp 6. What are we doing with nulls? Yeah. I hate nulls. I hate nulls. Well, I'm sorry, they're still there. It's only fair, nulls hate you back. Yeah, they do. (laughs) They have no mercy either. Yes, and there's... I'm sorry, did you say no mercy? Did you say that? I said no mercy. That's not good. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I don't know what we're going to do with you two. <laughs> you know what null mercy no. is? What's that? Null. Null. <laughs> right. You know, this. All sometimes right. my wife looks at me and she says, what's on your mind? And I just point at my head and say, null. Null. Yep. <laughs> oh, wait. Were we doing a show? I'm what sorry. a good idea. I'm sorry. Yeah, we let's talk, probably, let's talk about nulls and C-sharp We should probably do a show, six. shouldn't we? Right. So... The interesting thing that's happening with null is something called the null propagation operator, which is a question mark dot. And that, again, solves some of these specific scenarios that we all write where the code ends up looking like a mess because we don't have any choice. So imagine you have this structure of an object that contains members that are also objects that contain other members. So you might have like a customer order that has a contact person that has an address Hmm. that has, you know, a street so you can deliver it. So you'd be writing code that goes, if customer doesn't equal null, then if customer dot address doesn't equal null, then if customer dot address dot street doesn't equal null, print out street address. You know, and in, in larger applications that gets even more complicated and you've got five or six or seven different nested ifs. It just looks ugly. Right. And doesn't really make the code more readable. Well, in C-sharp 6 or in the new version of VB, you could write customer question mark dot address question mark dot street. And that will evaluate to either the string that is the street or null. And now I can print that out or just have the one check and go, if that's not null, then print the street out. Right. 
So I can change anytime where I'm chaining these different objects together. I've got members that are objects that might be null and so on and so forth. Yeah. I can now replace that with just that one simple syntax that just says any of these fields might be null, but I want to get to the last one if none of them are null. And if one of them along the chain is null, just return a null and I'll figure out what to do. Or return a true, right? So right. You're testing whether or not something's null. If it's null, you're out. Mm -hmm. And well, so and much cleaner. I, I And it bites you all the time. I don't care how great a programmer are, you are. You're going to miss something, you know? Right. And I mean, unit oh, yeah. tests are great, but you still have to write that code to, and you know, if this isn't null and that isn't null and the other thing isn't null. It's, right. It, yeah. And every developer says, there's no way that can be null. Right. Until it is. Until it is. Right, right up until it is. If it can be null, it's going to be null sometime. Right. Well, it's just a question of when do you throw the error, that's all. Yeah, the only, the only, and the only thing I can say is that you may have different errors and may have want to do different things depending on what's null. I mean, if something is null in a chain like that, there's usually a reason for it. And uh, if you if you know where something wasn't, you know, some code wasn't called or not initialized, you know, you may want to have a different uh, outcome, right? right? If this and is then null, then if that is null. And then in that case, you're still left to do individual checks. Right. Or you can use one of the other features, which is an exception filter. Okay. We haven't talked about it yet. No, lay it uh -oh. on me. All right. So what an exception filter does is normally we would have a catch. Yeah. And you could do something for your scenario, and I could say catch null reference exception. And now with an exception filter, then after that, I can put an expression. I can say if, you know, e dot parameter name equals customer, then I know it's the customer that's null and I can do something with it. Right. Right. So exception filters let me put a little bit more detail into how or when I want to catch a particular type of exception. Okay. Right. So that so now, those two things work nicely together then. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, there's other uses for exception filters. You know, think of when you send an HTTP request if something goes wrong, I think it's an HTTP client exception that you'd get, mm -hmm. right? And one of the fields in that exception is the response code. And you may want to do different things if it's a 404 or a 302 or a 500 or whatever and take different actions. So you can put exception filters on your catch clauses to be able to make that work. Awesome. And interesting. Yeah. Like just... It, and what my head immediately goes to, how would I write my code differently? Like, a, a lot of this stuff just gets way simpler now. Right. Smaller bits of stuff, smaller blocks of code to read to understand what the code does. And it, our, our listener said that at the beginning. This is cruft, right? All this decoration you have to manage nulls and to manage exceptions, it's cruft. Exactly. And the sooner I can make it go away, the happier I am. You got it. But it's, you know, this is just the first rev, right? C, I mean, effectively, C-sharp 6 is a rewrite of C-sharp by moving over to Roslyn. Exactly. They, they've written it all over again, they, and they've written it in C-sharp, which is that weird metaphysical, okay, how do I write a language inside of itself? <laughs> right. Right. And, and if you want to learn more about that, there's a very interesting paper on F-sharp um, in that it was self-hosted from the beginning. So there's some really, really interesting work that Don Simon and his group did to enable that so that the first F-sharp compiler was written in F-sharp. 
Awesome. Right. How they do that, I have no. You got to be Don Syme to do that. Yep. I think so. It's a little recursive. Yeah. Yep. So what have we missed, Bill? Well, one of the next ones that I really like a lot, and there's two other features I want to go over. The first one is expression-bodied members. Okay. So instead of saying, you know, public, double, dist, open bracket, get, semicolon, close bracket, you know, and then all the inside it return square root of x times x plus x times y, now I can write that as public, double, dist, lambda arrow, square root, open parent, x times x plus y times y. So we get rid of the get, the extra curly braces. I just declare this method and give it a lambda expression. And that's what we have coming back. Now, this it's always a question of, is the lambda expression easier to read? Like, I love the terseness, but is this going to make sense to me? And I think that becomes a matter of programming style. Yeah. Right? So in this case, where it's just calculating the square root, and it was a single line method anyway. Yeah. One value in, one value out. Right. There, I'm of the opinion that the lambda expression is easier to read. Right. Uh, if you've got a switch statement with five different cases in it, and some of those cases have five or ten lines and blocks in it, I think a method's easier to read. Yeah, you're going so, to hell. And and somewhere in the middle there is where it crosses. Yeah, there's, there there could be a, you know a co- a more complex expression there. I mean, this is where like link is lambda and it's complicated, but link is very easy to read. Right. You know, that was the whole thing. It's like, what's actually going on in the hood is kind of frightening. It's complex. But the expression is so coherent. And even there, we switch between two syntaxes. We have those query expression syntax, you know, from, you know, and in some collection, where, right. whatever, order by whatever, yeah. select something. And even there, when it starts getting more complicated, we might use the fluid method call syntax, where I'd say, you know, var answer equals collection dot where whatever, dot select, dot first, you know, dot skip, whatever, right? And, yeah. and start building it that way. And somewhere between the very simple expression and a much more complicated query, that line crosses between which of those syntaxes is easier to read. Yeah, and it's an interesting line. Well, you called it out right away. As soon as you throw a switch statement in, so you're doing more than one thing, now you you want a little more expansiveness so that you can clearly separate the different steps. But as long as it's one process, as long as there's one execution path, I'm pretty comfortable using a lambda there. Right. And that's kind of the way I feel about it. And then the last feature I want to go over, which kind of relates to this one, is what they're calling expression-bodied initializers or declarations. So... The classic one for this is if you have, um, you know, int dot try parse. One of the parameters to that is an out integer that will store the result. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you have to go, you know, var int x if int dot try parse some string comma out x whatever. So I've got that extra cruft lying around of that other declaration. Now I could just do if int dot try parse some string comma out var x close paren and declare an out parameter or a, a ref parameter directly in the method call. So I'm declaring it right where I use it. 
as part of that expression. And then nice. it's in scope in that block. Awesome. Yeah. So again, just a small thing that yep. gets rid of one line of code, makes it hopefully a little bit easier to read you know, and, and keeps the declaration right near where that variable is actually used. Bill, I want C-sharp 6 now. When can I have it? Well, download it from the CodePlex site and build it. Um, but there is also a CTP, and they're currently on CTP3 that's available. Um, and there are Azure VMs that have that CTP loaded on it. So okay, you can, but but if I don't want to, you know, to use a CTP, I want to, I want to, I want to know when the final product will be available. When do you? Th- I think I think we all do. Yeah. <laughs> Does anybody <laughs> have? Are, are they hinting at all? I have not heard any hints one way or the other. Not on, even on anything. Yeah. No. Not I, even I what have, season. I, <laughs> what year? I, I have, not heard anything, Richard. <laughs> didn't I? Didn't Mads harass us when I said Roslyn's like fusion power? It's just ten years away. Yeah. <laughs> it's always ten years away. Always because it's been a lot of years. I've, they it, it was a while. Yeah, but it feels like it. It definitely feels like it's getting closer. They're starting to actually call it a product now. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that there's a couple really big milestones that happened early this year that that the team talked about is that now you know the Roslyn code stream merged into the main code stream. It's just one code base, this is now the C-sharp and the VB compilers are the ones that, that are the Roslyn compilers. Uh, and I think having CTPs of Visual Studio 14 is another important milestone. It's not, like you said earlier, Richard, it's not this, go grab this other CTP, add it onto VS 13 and turn it on and turn it off. It's now its own thing that's coming. So I think there's definitely a lot of progress being made. I think there's a lot it's a lot closer than it was, and I think there's there's a lot of excitement building. So I think there's a lot of people in that boat that say, I want it now. Yeah. yeah. Well, in, in Script CS, like, we haven't really talked about it this show, but it was sort of mentioned briefly there. Like, it's that is using the C-sharp language as your macro environment, as your command environment. Like, it's such a powerful way to think that... Uh, It'll be interesting to see when this is a full product. Just, I think it's going to be a Cambrian explosion. It's going to go all over the place. Oh, I think so. And and you know, you add to that that Xamarin, the Xamarin team is is using the Rosalind compilers, yeah, you know, major sections of them because they're instead of generating IL, they're generating um, the Java bytecode or the um, um, the iOS machine code, you know, rather than MSIL. Yeah. But that's still just a phenomenal thing that is just going to power charge a lot of the development, I think. Man, and, what, and one of the wait. big advantages here now is that that just makes your C-sharp skills more valuable. No matter where you go, because this compiler is available to anybody, anywhere, whatever you want to add it to, you know you can use those skills. Exactly. And I think that's one of the very interesting comments I heard at a conference recently was, if you want to write an app that runs on every device, you have two language choices. JavaScript or C sharp, mm, right? Mm-hmm. And then this is just taking it further, right? And I think that's that's wicked cool, and I love the things that I'm seeing coming out uh, and uh, the things that are planned. I think that's a show. Great, yeah, I think that's a show, Bill, Richard. Alrighty, been awesome. I can't wait. I just, I just can't wait. I want it now. Yeah, when your only reaction to the story is, I need this now. I need this now, especially the <laughs> null stuff. In the, oh, it's it's all great. All right, Bill, we'll see you at the next conference. Hey, when's your next uh, uh, humanitarian toolbox hackathon? 
we are proposing one for Code Match, which is probably the next one that's of the most interest for um, this audience. Mm-hmm. We are also doing a testing one in Vancouver in October. Ah. And there's the open source Grace Hopper Day, which is in Phoenix. That's also on a weekend in October. Yeah, and, and um, Dan Walleen just signed on Dan for Wall- that. That'll be fantastic. Dan's a wonderful person to have helping us drive some of the development there. I think that's going to help kickstart getting a lot of work done. I'm really thrilled with the progress that we've had at any of the events we've been at at that conference and um, M Intersection and so on. Yeah. You guys are awesome. I just got to say that. You, You humanitarian toolbox guys. Well, we're becoming a real charity. It's almost like being a real boy. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Human, what... Was it htbox.org? Is that it? At htbox.org, you'll find everything about us to sign up for the newsletter, and the blog will get updated with any of the events that we're planning. And uh, if you watch conference schedules, any of the time, any of the conferences you're at, if we're there, it'll be announced along with the regular conference schedule. And stop by, join us, and build some code. Awesome. All right, Bill, we'll see you next time. All right, thank you, Carl. Thank you, Richard. And we'll talk to you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the MC.